Well, I am excited to be joined by Marco Vigato today, the Italian-born researcher and explorer uh, who lives in Mexico City. And Marco, I was looking over your uh, credentials. I see you were educated at Harvard. Uh, you've written uh, a great book called The Empires of Atlantis, which I want to ask you about later. Uh, you've been on all kinds of uh, TV shows and documentaries, most recently Ancient Apocalypse with Graham Hancock. So I got to ask you about that. Pretty exciting. And you're also president of the ARCS Association. Wow, Marco. I mean, just the intro alone uh, shows your credentials. I'm so honored to have you back on the Megalithic Marvels podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much, uh, Derek. It's always a pleasure to be on the show with you. Let's start out. Tell us a little bit about Ancient Apocalypse and uh, how you got invited by Graham to be a part of that. And for people that might not know, uh, tell us what episode you were on and what that experience was like with Graham. Yeah, for sure. So it was an episode two, uh, which uh, if you've uh, watched the series, uh, was the episode uh, dedicated uh, specifically to Mesoamerica. So there was a segment that was filmed at Cholula, a couple more segments at a very interesting megalithic site uh, just outside of Mexico City called Tezcozingo and Chicago, which is one of my favorite archaeological sites uh, in uh, all of Mexico. Uh, as you know, I've been researching uh, ancient Mesoamerica and the megalithic civilization of Mexico now for the past uh, seven or eight years. And so um, the, the, the contact uh, with uh, the production team uh, and with uh, Graham came uh, mostly through uh, my work, uh, my recent publications on ancient Mesoamerica. I've written several articles now on various uh, megalithic sites all over Mexico. And so that's how we started uh, the connection uh, and how we got invited to uh, participate uh, in the show as an expert on uh, Mesoamerica. Man, it really paid for you, I guess. Paid off for you to move from all the way from Italy to Mexico, where uh, you've kind of become, yeah, really one of the foremost experts on the ancient civilizations of Mexico and the megalithic uh, lost cultures. So really exciting. Um, okay, so I mentioned that you are president of the ARCS Association. So tell uh, my listeners, my audience, what um, ARCS Association is, what that stands for. And then let's get into some of the exciting discoveries you've been making, starting with the, the Mitla site. Yes. So back in 2020, um, together with uh, two more collaborators, I co-founded uh, the ARCS Association. Uh, ARCS stands for Archaeological Research and Exploration. And uh, at the core of uh, the ARCS Association's mission is to promote the research uh, and exploration into the archaeological heritage of Mexico and Mesoamerica. So we do actually fund uh, and sponsor expeditions uh, across uh, Mexico, Mesoamerica to uh, uncover the truth uh, about the origins of Mesoamerican civilization. Uh, of course, operating uh, as an independent organization, we're pretty much uh, uh, autonomous in terms of funding. Of course, we operate with uh, all the required permits. Uh, we work in very close collaboration with the Mexican National Institute of History and Anthropology, with various universities and academic institutions uh, here in Mexico. And for us, it's very important uh, that uh, all of our research is uh, conducted uh, within uh, the utmost uh, scientific uh, standards. Uh, so complying with uh, um, all the scientific uh, academic protocols. So that's how we have been uh, involved uh, recently in a couple of projects. One uh, in uh, southeastern Mexico in the state of Oaxaca, which is a, a project in Yoba, and I'm going to talk about that in, uh, in just a moment, which involves a geophysical study of the archaeological site of Mitla, but also in the state of Mexico at a very interesting archaeological site called San Miguel Ixtapan, 
where we have sponsored uh, the recovery of now several megalithic stone slabs belonging to an unknown culture. They're still studying and trying to understand which culture civilization they may belong and what uh, the age of these very enigmatic finds might be. I think it's really exciting, Marco, because on one hand, you were educated at Harvard. Um, you created this ARCS project association. And so you're um, all about doing stuff the right way with science, like you said, uh, following all the protocols, working with the uh, Mexican government. Um, yet, based on what I know f of you from the past and some of the TV shows you've, you've done and the articles you've even written for Megalithic Marvels, you think way beyond the mainstream. Uh, you're a critical thinker. You're what some might call an alternative researcher in a sense. And so I love that you've got the best of both worlds here. Um, you're, you're a critical thinker. You're not boxed into just the mainstream paradigm yet with your education and with this association you've created, you're able to get in and actually start mm -hmm. digging in the dirt and discovering. So it's pretty exciting. So tell us about, what you guys have been uncovering at Mitla, this amazing ancient site in Mexico, I believe it was um, considered by the, you call it the Zapotecs, to be an entrance yeah. to the underworld. Mm -hmm. And so uh, tell us a little bit about the site and the exciting things you're uncovering. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, it's really important that the facts uh, speak for themselves. So no matter what my personal convictions, uh, my personal beliefs uh, are, we don't want these to get into in the way of uh, rigorous uh, scientific research. And so one example of that is uh, a project Liobadi's research that you mentioned at Mitla. There we partner with uh, several institutions, so with the Mexico National Institute of History and Anthropology, with the National Autonomous University of Mexico, to conduct a geophysical survey of the archaeological site. What that involves is the use of different uh, uh, ground prospection methods that include ground penetrating radar, electric resistivity tomography, and seismic tomography to image what uh, lies, what exists uh, below the ground of Mitla. This is, as you know, a site that has fascinated me for many, many years now because of its impressive megalithic architecture. Uh, there are a number of uh, very interesting uh, megalithic structures, not only in Mitla, but also in the nearby mountains, like the megalithic chamber of Guerun that I think you also covered. So uh, this is uh, one of my uh, personal favorite sites uh, in uh, all of Mexico. And uh, uh, there have always been stories uh, around uh, the possible existence of a very extensive network of subterranean chambers and tunnels underneath the site. Um, there are actually accounts that date back uh, to the 1600s that talk about these uh, underground labyrinth uh, underneath the site of Mitla. But up to this point, nobody had really um, employed uh, these type of geophysical methods to confirm or not the existence of these tunnels. So in uh, 2022, for the first time, we conducted a comprehensive geophysical survey, a geophysical scan of the site that uh, now we can say uh, confirmed uh, the existence of these uh, subterranean chambers. Uh, we actually detected several very large chambers located almost directly underneath uh, the main Catholic Church of Mitla that appear to be connected uh, by a network of uh, subterranean tunnels extending to a very great, to a very considerable depth uh, below ground, uh, up to, uh, in some cases, uh, 12 or 15, uh, down to 18 meters below ground. So there is a clearly evidence of a very large uh, network of subterranean chambers and tunnels. And now uh, in, a, in a second phase of uh, this project, we want to uncover more about not only the extent of these subterranean, but also their possible contents. Mila is such an incredible site. You um, wrote an article for us on megalithic marvels mm -hmm. handful of years ago and you we you talked about this site uh Mitla, and you shared with me some fascinating photographs mm 
and there's this one photograph. It shows a railing in one corner, and then you see um, this, you know, subterranean looks like underground, really big blocks mm -hmm. that are mortarless, which also have this beautiful kind of fretwork in it. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, absolutely. This is one of the uh, one of two known subterranean chambers that exist at Midlab. So when the first excavations were conducted site in the 1800s, two subterranean chambers were discovered in the southern part of the site. I think some of the most impressive megalithic architecture, not only in Mexico, but per perhaps in the entire world. As you uh, say, uh, these uh, subterranean chambers are massively built of huge megalithic stone blocks. Uh, they contain, in one case, a monolithic columns. So, the fitting uh, and the jointing of the stones uh, is uh, very close to perfection, some of the finest I've ever seen anywhere on earth, and that includes Egypt uh, and Peru. So uh, these, uh, this suggests that these are new chambers that we have now uncovered uh, underneath the church, at least uh, whose existence we have confirmed by means of geophysical methods, uh, could also be built of huge megalithic stone blocks. So we're really talking about some megalithic stone chambers. Uh, the evidence for that comes, uh, on the one hand, from just the analogy with these other chambers that are known from the southern part of the site, even though the newly discovered chambers under the church are much larger uh, than uh, the two other chambers are known at uh, Mitla. And the second piece of evidence also comes from the geophysical scan itself, which shows uh, some areas of uh, higher resistivity or high density, which uh, is compatible with the fact that the walls, uh, potentially the ceilings and floors of these chambers are, are in fact constructed with huge megaliths. The reality is that at Mitla, the natural bedrock is pretty fragile. It's not a very good quality bedrock. And so in pretty much all cases, whenever they build below the ground, they would have excavated some deeper rock cut trenches uh, and then lined the walls, floors and ceilings of these chambers, which with much better quality stone, like andesite, uh, volcanic tova, like much harder basalt in some cases. And so this is what we find uh, at Mitla and what we also expect to find at these uh, newly uncovered subterranean chambers. This site, tell us a little bit about what does mainstream academia, how, how old do they say the site is, at least on the surface above ground? And then what is your theory on the megalithic blocks underneath, do you believe these predate the stuff above ground? Because like you said, these, these megaliths look like something you would see in Peru or Egypt. I don't know exactly what stone that is. So like you said, it might all be a little bit softer stone, which doesn't hold up as long. Um, but give us a little bit on the mainstream take on how old Mitla is. And then do you think the foundations predate that? Well, Mitla is, uh, in fact, one of the oldest uh, continuously inhabited sites uh, uh, in all of the Americas. There is evidence of human occupation at Mitla that dates back over 10,000 years ago to 8,000 BC, which I also find is something very intriguing when you find that these uh, very impressive megalithic sites uh, closely associated uh, with early human occupation and the birth of agriculture. Mitla is, in fact, uh, one of, uh, and uh, I'm talking specifically about Mitla, not just Mexico or Central America, being one of the cradles of agriculture, there is evidence that so many of our modern crops, including corn, beans, gourds, squash, were first domesticated in the area of Mitla over 10,000 years ago. So, that specific area is very much connected with the birth, with the development of agriculture. And I find fascinating that you find that this association between agriculture and megalithic architecture, not only at Mitla, but also places like Gobekli Tepe, for instance, in Turkey, in Egypt, uh, in Sumer, in Mesopotamia. So there is a, some sort of association here that I find fascinating. 
Now, when uh, we talk about the age of the of the site uh, of Mithla, even though clearly human occupation uh, there goes back uh, thousands and thousands of years, so most of the ruins uh, that we see today above ground are dated uh, to between uh, the first centuries uh, CE to around uh, the 11th or 12th century CE, so relatively close to the time of the Spanish conquest. However, there is evidence that these structures were continuously rebuilt on top of earlier buildings, on top of earlier structures. One of the most important findings of the geophysical survey is the existence of an earlier building, of an earlier palace or temple underneath what is uh, the main uh, architectural structure at Mitla, which is called the Palace of the Columns. Now, the geophysical survey showed that the existence of an earlier stairway, which is now buried uh, deeper underneath the platform of uh, this uh, structure, which shows uh, in turn that Mitla must have been already an important site, perhaps uh, centuries before its apogee in the first centuries of uh, the present year. It's a beautiful site, and it reminds me in a sense of like I was just in Egypt and we visited Dendera, and there's Hathor Temple there. And what I love about that site is you've got massive scale, massive blocks, um, yet you also have like these subterranean, very intricate passageways with incredible small detail. And so that kind of reminds me of Mitla, where you've got some of these huge megalithic blocks under the ground. You've got ruins of some massive pillars still standing upright, which clearly look like they predate the other stuff above ground. And then you've got this intricate uh, fretwork mm-hmm. uh, detail that is just precision and and beautiful. And so... I just like the mix. We don't just have big, but we've got intricate precision. Um, incredible sight. Um, anything else you want to tell us about uh, Mitla, Marco? Because I also want to ask you about these Tiwanaku-style megaliths you guys discovered in Mexico. Yes. So right now, as I said, uh, we conducted this first uh, season of geophysical uh, uh, study at Mitla last year. This year, we're going to be back on site in September to conduct a second uh, phase, a second season of research, which is going to focus on some of the other groups of structure. Right now we have very solid evidence of the existence of vast uh, subterranean chambers uh, underneath the church. Now we want to confirm what is the extent of these chambers, whether these tunnels that we have identified at very great depth going down over 12 uh, down to 18 meters below ground, which is almost 50 or 60 feet below ground. So we're talking about almost a six-story building underground. Uh, Whether they extend uh, uh, much farther than the area that was surveyed during the first season. So that's the reason why we're going to be scanning also some of the other groups of structures that include uh, some of the earliest buildings at Mitla. There is a massive pyramid, which in ancient times was probably used as a temple of the sun, which is presently called the Adobe Group. It's, uh, it actually has a colonial church built on top. We will be scanning that pyramid to see if there are any subterranean chambers, if there is any connection with the other tunnels. And our hope is that uh, with this second season, we should be able to identify some potential entrances, some potential access points. They may have been blocked during antiquity or during the colonial period that would give us access to these uh, subterranean network. So these Zapotecs, again, their oral traditions and legends say that this was an entrance to the underworld. Yes. Now tell us a little bit about who the Zapotecs were uh, what time frame were they here? And then is there any truth to this underworld? And does that have any connection to these Catholic churches being built on top of all of these sites, not just in Mexico, but around the world? Tell us your thoughts on that. 
Well, the Zapotec were one of the oldest uh, and most advanced uh, Mesoamerican civilization. The origins of the Zapotec civilization, they date back almost 3,000 years. They were, in fact, uh, uh, almost contemporary with the Olmecs. Uh, and uh, they built impressive sites, uh, some uh, uh, very uh, fascinating, very extensive mountaintop sites in Oaxaca, like Monte Albana, for instance. Mitlam is uh, generally considered to have originated as a Zapotec site and then to have been later occupied by the Mistec, which was another civilization that existed in, in the area. But the origins of the site are Zapotec. Uh, now, when uh, we talk about these traditions, about the underworld, uh, clearly the site of Midland, part of the reason why it was so important in pre-Hispanic times, uh, is that uh, it was uh, considered to be a sanctuary uh, dedicated to the gods of the underworld. It was a burial place uh, for Zapotec royalty, for Zapotec uh, elite. Uh, and uh, it was believed that, that the entrance uh, to the Zapotec underworld, which was called the Lioba, was uh, physically located at Mitlapur in some vast uh, underground cavern. Now, we're able to uh, recover a very rare document from the 1600s uh, written by a Dominican father, Father Francisco de Burgoa, who was at the time the general inquisitor of Oaxaca, where he relates uh, about uh, the discovery by Spanish priests uh, of a set of uh, crypts and what he calls a subterranean labyrinth underneath the site of Mithla. What Burgot describes is essentially an arrangement of uh, several subterranean chambers that contained uh, the tombs of the high priests uh, and the kings uh, of Mitla and the whole Zapotec region. So confirming this idea that Mitla was uh, the burial place uh, for Zapotec royalty and Zapotec nobility. And what is most interesting about Burgoa's account uh, is that you also mentioned one chamber, uh, the deepest chamber actually, that uh, connected by means of a stone door with uh, a vast uh, subterranean cavern, which was uh, itself considered to be the entrance to the underworld. And this is uh, uh, very similar to what the geophysical scans show. They actually seem to um, they actually show four large voids underneath the church connected with uh, a larger central chamber, central void, which uh, would be uh, a chamber with the approximate dimensions of 15 by 10 meters or about 45 by 30 feet. So we're really talking about a very large chamber with the roof possibly supported by monolithic columns or pillars. And what you can see is a, a vertical shaft uh, that shows up very clearly in the geophysical scan that continues uh, farther down to what appears to be the mouth of a cavern. So that would confirm, uh, again, the account of Burgoa. And uh, uh, we are all very excited about what we may find in these subterranean chambers. If Burgoa's account is accurate, we may found uh, royal tombs, uh, priestly tombs in these chambers, uh, and potentially many still intact artifacts from the Zapotec civilization. That is so fascinating. A couple more questions popped into my head when you were talking there. One is, will, you, will these subterranean tunnels be cleared enough eventually to where you could actually go down in there yourself? That's that's what we hope. Uh, actually, uh, one good piece of news from the geophysical survey is that at least the larger chambers, they appear to be mostly free of debris. So they seem to be still pretty much intact, uh, at least from a structural point of view. And part of that may be due to the fact that they are very massively built of stone, is it? as I mentioned before, they're probably megalithic subterranean chambers. So, um, so this gives us confidence that these voids are actually accessible and they can be explored. Now, before anyone can actually enter these chambers, what uh, we uh, propose is uh, 
that uh, we insert uh, some endoscopic cameras, uh, so drilling holes, so probably giving also the depth uh, at which these chambers are located, so we can get a better sense uh, of uh, the space, uh, the size, uh, the dimension, and possibly the content of these chambers before any excavation is attempted. Can you say again this guy's name in the 1600s who wrote about this site? Yes, uh, his name was uh, Francisco de Burgoa. He was a Dominican uh, uh, priest. He uh, was general inquisitor of Oaxaca, and he, he wrote in 1674. However, he had access to documents uh, dating back uh, probably to the mid or late 1500s about an inquisitorial trial that was celebrated at Mitla, where Spanish priests were called in to investigate claims that the local inhabitants were still practicing the old Zapotec religion in this subterranean temple. And that's how they discovered the entrance to these underground chambers. Now, you, you also ask about the connection between the church and the ruins. What you find at Mitla is at many other ancient sites, and not only throughout Mesoamerica, but throughout the ancient world, is that the Catholic faith always tried to appropriate some of these earlier religious places, some of these earlier cult sites. And so in the case of Mitla, it only makes sense to assume that the Catholic Church of Mitla was built on top of the most important, the most sacred temple of the ancient city, which is actually what we find in the foundations of the church. You see these massive monolithic stone blocks that were reused as part of the foundations of the church, particularly the apse of the church, appears to have been built using these massive monolithic lintels. They may weigh between 10 or 15 tons that we believe are part of the original megalithic construction that existed there and that somehow communicated with these subterranean chambers. And no, weren't some of these Catholic um, structures being built on top of these ancient ruins so that they could go down and find whatever might have been inside, correct? Yes, yes, that's the idea. Actually, what Burgoa mentions in his account is that when the Spanish uncovered these uh, chambers, either for fear uh, Keep in mind that at the time, the area had just been recently conquered by the church and so, uh, and by the Spanish conquistadors. And so, uh, what, uh, what Burgoa says is that uh, they basically just sealed off the entrances and built their church on top. So it doesn't sound like they went on to destroy the structures. Uh, in fact, what we find admittedly is that many of the structures were not destroyed. They were so solidly built that they were just reused by the Spanish later on. And uh, what Burgoa says is that because the cavern was so vast uh, and for fear of getting lost, that these Spanish priests uh, upon exploring just a very small section of this subterranean labyrinth, uh, they went back uh, and simply walled up and blocked all the entrances, later building the church on top. So this gives us hope uh, that many of the artifacts, many of the objects were originally contained in these chambers may still be there. So we may still find important evidence of the rituals of the cults that were practiced uh, during Zapotec times at Midland. Do you guys have a guesstimate on if all if everything goes well, how soon do you think you might be able to get down into those chambers to find the artifacts? Well, I uh, I do expect, uh, as I said, this year in September, we're going to be back on site to complete the geophysical survey. This will hopefully give us more information about potential access points or identifying what would be the best location for conducting some small-scale drilling or perforation and for inserting a camera into, into these passages. Um, of course, it will probably take uh, a while, uh, uh, I would say optimistically, maybe between uh, one or two years uh, before we can get all the permits and authorizations so, to actually conduct the drilling. It's not only about uh, the INA, the, the National Mexican Institute of History and Anthropology, also about the local community. Keep in mind that this church is still a very active uh, cult place. Uh, Mitla, the archaeological site itself, is very much in the middle of the modern 
on of Midland. So also need to be careful, need to be respectful of uh, the beliefs uh, of the local population, do that uh, in a way that is acceptable to, to the local community. But I do expect that we may get uh, some news and maybe some images of these chambers uh, probably within the next two or three years. Exciting, exciting. Uh, Marco, what I love about your research in particular is just when I think I've seen everything there is to see of ancient architecture, you every couple of years blow my mind with something brand new that I've never seen. And so um, a handful of years, I think it was back around 2018, you um, shocked me with showing images of this cruciform chamber of was it garun is that what it's called and this is like a literal cross that you see embedded in the top of this hill with full-on megalithic mortarless uh joinery again like you'd see in in peru and if i remember right you said this this chamber was actually considered lost for quite a while yes yeah and then you and maybe some others in a modern day sense, basically rediscovered this thing. And if you're watching by video uh, on Spotify here or YouTube, I'm going to show you these images. Um, if you're just listening, I'll have links to these uh, in the show notes you can click. But tell us a little bit about this cruciform um, chamber. And then after that, tell us about the Tiwanaku mm -hmm. Bolivia style megaliths you found in Mexico. Both are incredible. Yes, well, so about the, the chamber of Guerun, this is actually a site uh, which is located only a few kilometers, four or five kilometers to the east of Mitla. So it's very close to, to Mitla. It shows the same type of megalithic stonework of megalithic architecture. Now, what is unique about this stone chamber at uh, Guerun is the fact that it was uh, first discovered and excavated by Marshal Saville in 1902. And then it was uh, apparently lost uh, for, for decades. Uh, until it was, uh, uh, in a way, like rediscovered uh, just in the in the early 2000s. It was among the first uh, to document uh, that site in, uh, in modern times. Uh, it's uh, a very impressive site. Uh, to me, it's probably one of the most impressive uh, and remarkable megalithic architectures in all of Mexico. As you will see, it's built with stone blocks that are up to six or seven meters long. They weigh in excess of 30 up to 50 tons. And uh, keep in mind that Guirún was a relatively small satellite site of Midline. So if uh, these uh, newly discovered chambers uh, at uh, Mitla were really like the real deal, uh, really the main temple of that civilization. We can only imagine uh, their structure to be at least uh, as impressive as uh, that chamber of Quirun. Actually, do expect that most of what we will uncover in Mitla under the church will closely mirror the same type of architecture of this uh, chamber, of this cruciform chamber, and these other subterranean chambers at Quirun and the other nearby sites. Amazing. Most people familiar with megaliths and ancient architecture are familiar with the mind-blowing uh, stone blocks at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku in Bolivia. I mean, these things feature precision edges, uh, drill holes, and really just have that unique look um, that is different than what you'd even see in Peru, what you see in, in Bolivia has that unique look. Well, you discovered and your team, I think it's this ARCS project, right? Yes. yes. Just a couple of years ago, two years ago, these blocks in, again, we're talking about Mexico that look almost identical to what you might see in Bolivia at Tiwanaku. So tell us about that discovery, that site, and, and what, you're, what you did with those, those blocks. Yeah, so there was a, a very uh, unexpected find uh, for me, and quite quite literally in in my in my backyard almost. It's uh, it's very close up actually to to, to where I live. Uh, it's a site called San Miguel Ixtapan. And uh, uh, the, the fascinating thing about this site is that there is almost no documentation of these uh, megalithic uh, stone blocks. 
Now, um, to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of history about uh, the site, back in 1959, two American archaeologists, uh, Charles Wickey and Modi Bullington, visited the site and also encountered these massive megalithic stone blocks with precision-style carvings, a very bold geometric style that also immediately reminded them of South American stone. They ended up publishing uh, an article in American Antiquity, which is a very prestigious uh, Cambridge Journal of Archaeology in 1959, titled uh, An Andean Influence in Central Mexico. What is suggested in that article is that uh, these uh, stones, these monoliths, uh, reflected uh, an artistic tradition that was not indigenous uh, of Mexico, but actually came from South America, and that they belonged to a yet unknown civilization that existed in, uh, in central Mexico probably thousands of years ago. Now, Wiki and Bullington were completely discredited after publishing this article because Mexican archaeologists completely rejected their claims. Actually, most Mexican archaeologists suggested that uh, um, that these slabs were in fact colonial in origin. They were manufactured quite recently, they were in fact modern, and these on the basis of the fact that the style of the carving was too precise. Uh, there was no way, according to these uh, uh, scholars uh, that examined the slabs, that they could have been created with simple stone tools without the use of hard metal tools, of steel and modern type of tools and equipment. And so for over 50 years, these slabs were completely forgotten. They were just uh, dismissed as modern uh, colonial artifacts. Uh, and this was until two of these slabs uh, were discovered uh, in the late uh, 1990s uh, within an archaeological context. Uh, there was uh, excavations uh, conducted at San Miguel Ixtapan that uncovered two megalithic stone slabs identical to the ones reported by the American archaeologists in the 50s uh, um, within a sealed chamber under a pyramid uh, at the site of San Miguel Ixtapan that was uh, dated, uh, I think conservatively, to 700 uh, CE. Now, the interesting aspect about the slabs, however, in the chamber where they were found, is that uh, uh, these uh, looked more like a cachet, meaning like a place where uh, already during antiquity, several artifacts like these slabs, uh, statues and sculptures were uh, stored, uh, uh, perhaps in order to preserve them for future generations, relics and sacred objects. But there is evidence that the slabs were in fact much, much older. They were already heavily eroded, heavily damaged by the time they were buried. Uh, so this suggests that these slabs may be in fact much, much older. Now, since then, with the ARCS project, we have been able to uncover and to document, uh, uh, working very closely with uh, the local site director, Victor Osorio, and the Secretary of Culture of the State of Mexico, over 20 of these uh, megalithic stone slabs. Uh, over a relatively small area, mostly concentrated around the site and the village of San Miguel Ixtapan, and uh, we have uh, recently uh, uncovered uh, two, well, I would say really three uh, finds uh, that uh, I think are among the most uh, impressive, the most uh, remarkable artifacts that I've ever seen anywhere in Mexico. One is a massive basalt stone slab, probably three to five tons in weight. It was broken uh, quite recently, unfortunately, by treasure hunters, believing there was gold or some precious uh, metals or stones inside uh, the slab. Uh, and so it was broken into three pieces. Uh, we're able to successfully recover the three pieces and reassemble the stone slab, which is now on display in the site museum of San Miguel Ixtapan. And then just recently, uh, a few months ago, in fact, in May, we recovered a second slab that was uh, accidentally uncovered during agricultural works at uh, another small site called San Francisco Los Nopales, just a few kilometers from San Miguel Ixtapan. Another beautiful slab carved in, uh, uh, we're still not sure if the stone is andesite or basalt. We're still conducting petrographic uh, exams on the stone, but it's clearly a very hard stone that is non-local 
to a region with the same kind of perfect geometric carving. So that slab we also recovered and we created actually a permanent structure for it to be displayed and, uh, and preserved. And the third find is uh, that of a megalithic stone quarry that we're still exploring, we're still investigating, where we found a massive 15-ton stone slab there which is still in the process of excavation. So it was probably a semi-finished or yet unfinished stone slab that shows evidence of what we call what you may call scoop marks of on that slab that show what type of technique was probably used for, for carving it, which again suggests that the people that carved this slab had access to um, set of tools to um, stone working techniques very similar to what you find at other megalithic sites in South America, at Tiwanaku, at Pumapunku, or in Egypt as well, where you find very similar marks on the stones, these very peculiar scoop marks, very precisely cut angles, uh, perfectly flat stone surfaces. This is the same we find at San Miguel Ixtapan. And to my knowledge, this is the only site in Mexico that displays this type of precision and megalithic engineering. You also pointed out before in an article you wrote for megalithicmarvels.com, and I'll link it, Five Megalithic Mysteries of Mexico. And in it, you hit on the amazing site of Teotihuacan. And you write that there's evidence that an immense megalithic structure may have once stood in the area now occupied by the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpents. Mm -hmm. And you provided pictures that show, I believe, on the backside, one of the backsides of the pyramid, these huge blocks um, that are just strewn everywhere that look quite different and even much larger than what the main pyramid was built out of. Tell us a little bit about Teotihuacan and um, how it might be older than we've been led to believe. Well, Teotihuacan, of course, is one of the most uh, fascinating archaeological sites in Mesoamerica. It was home to these enormous ancient metropolis uh, that flourished uh, almost 2,000 years ago with massive pyramids, pyramids of the sun, uh, the moon. Uh, however, when you look at the architecture of Teotihuacan, uh, it mostly consists uh, of uh, relatively small stones uh, cemented together, adobe. So even though the architecture is clearly impressive, the stonework itself is very crude and quite quite primitive, in fact, with one notable exception, which is these uh, huge stone blocks that lie scattered all around the Pyramid of the Feather Serpent. Now, when archaeologists uh, excavated at the Pyramid of Feather Serpent, they uncovered an earlier pyramid underneath. They uncovered also dozens of uh, very large megalithic stone blocks. They were later reused uh, as part of the filling of uh, these uh, later pyramid that was constructed at the site. Now, we don't know where exactly these uh, huge megalithic stone blocks came from, but what is remarkable about them is that they're very precisely cut. They're all produced of very hard stones like andesite and basalt, uh, and uh, they clearly lie scattered all around as if uh, they had been uh, either part of uh, some structure that was later dismantled, that was later demolished, so that they were reused by the later inhabitants of Teotihuacan for building their pyramids, for building their structures. So this is what suggests to me that the earliest uh, layer of Teotihuacan, because uh, as many other sites across uh, Mesoamerica, Teotihuacan was built in several different stages, or many layers, many cities almost built one on top of each other. That this earliest construction layer of Teotihuacan was megalithic. There was a megalithic city, a megalithic, uh, megalithic buildings that existed at the site uh, that later were dismantled, reused uh, by the later inhabitants and occupants of the site. Marco, you wrote a book not long ago called The Empires of Atlantis, The Origins of Ancient Civilizations and Mystery Traditions Throughout the Ages. What a title. I love that. So you wrote this book. You're an author. You live in Mexico, and we're talking about the megalith foundations that uh, predate a lot of the other uh, architecture. I know you've 
you grew up in Italy. You've seen the megaliths there at all those cool sites. You were recently um, in Lebanon visiting um, Baalbek and Petra. So you've been all over the world. You've seen these sites. You wrote this book. Um, and I definitely want to promote your book, and I'll link to it so people can buy it. But kind of give us, in a nutshell, your belief system on this ancient civilization that seems to have been connected all over the world before some ancient cataclysm. Uh, what was it like? What are your thoughts? I'd love to hear that. Sure. So uh, the reason why I wrote the book is to present uh, these uh, theory, these hypotheses of uh, a global uh, prehistoric uh, megalithic civilization, so a global seafaring culture that uh, spread agriculture as well as megalithic building, uh, advanced uh, astronomy, mathematics, uh, architecture all over the world, uh, which uh, we may identify with the civilization of uh, Plato's Atlantis, uh, essentially. What I present and I discuss in the book is the evidence for ancient megalithic civilizations from both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, you mentioned a number of sites in Egypt, in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, in other parts of the old world, as well as in the new world, in Mexico, in South America, how these cultures uh, were connected in, in ancient times. Actually, one of the hypotheses that I present uh, in the book is that all these different megalithic building cultures from both the old world and the new world, they had a common origin from a now lost, sunken mid-Atlantic continent. And it was uh, the progressive sinking of these mid-Atlantic landmass over thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, that prompted the different ways of migration so on both sides of the Atlantic, which in turn triggered these uh, flourishing of civilization, uh, both in the old and in the new world. Let's go back to Mexico real quick. So I know you are well-versed in Olmec culture, and I'm so fascinated by the giant heads of the Olmecs um, and all of these figurines we see in the museums with elongated skulls and um, features that you wouldn't think are of Mexican origin, right? Um, tell us your thoughts on the Olmecs. I think we're still very much tied to some uh, very antiquated views of, of the origins of civilization in, in Mesoamerica. Even the, the idea that the Olmecs uh, are the mother culture of Mesoamerica, I think that's, uh, that's an, an idea that uh, needs to be uh, like discussed and challenged uh, in a way as evidence for even earlier Mesoamerican civilization. Um, is, uh, is coming to light. Uh, um, actually, much of my research is focused on uncovering uh, the origins of a Mesoamerican civilization. Um, not only on the Gulf Coast, where, of course, you have these very impressive Olmec finds with the giant stone heads, uh, impressive sites like La Venta, San Lorenzo, but mostly in the highlands of central Mexico. I do believe that the origins of a Mesoamerican civilization must be sought uh, not on the coast, but in the highlands of uh, Morelos, uh, Guerrero, the central Mexico state. Well, there are some uh, impressive and very little known sites uh, that are megalithic and may in fact predate uh, the later Olmec development on, uh, on the coast. So this is actually a hypothesis that uh, I'm working on and will be the subject of uh, a future book. Now, as you uh, talk specifically about uh, the, the Olmecs, so there are many fascinating aspects about Olmec culture. For once, they were the first, uh, at least that we know of, uh, the first civilization to use the Mesoamerican calendar. They developed these extremely sophisticated uh, system for counting time. They introduced the concept of zero. Many of these inventions that uh, generally attributed to the Mayas or in fact uh, of Olmec origin, including the very origin and the very development of uh, Mesoamerican writing. And there is a, a still there um, an unresolved question about uh, the genetic or ethnic origin of uh, the Olmecs. For long, people had speculated that because of the um, 
the traits, uh, the just the physical traits of these giant Olmec stone heads. They may have had some connection with the old world, with Africa, maybe. Uh, and I think this is a this is a very real possibility, and it would go even further than that. I think there is evidence uh, from many archaeological sites in Mexico, not only the Gulf Coast, but also the Central Mexican Highlands, Oaxaca, that ancient Mexico was much more similar to a melting pot of cultures of different ethnicities, uh, where of course uh, you had um, the would would we identify today as uh, the Mesoamerican Indians, but then you also had other ethnicities there. When you find portraits, for instance, at sites like Montalban, of people that are clearly depicted and portrayed as a Semitic, almost looking like Egyptians or Europeans or Africans, that suggests a much broader network of contacts and interactions between ancient Mesoamerica and the, uh, the old world. All over Mexico, as well as in many parts of Central and South America, you find very similar traditions that talk about the arrival of gods like Quetzalcoatl, like Kukulcan, Viracocha in South America, or Tunupa, that came from across the sea and brought civilization, they brought agriculture, they brought uh, the knowledge of uh, sculpture, painting, the calendar, mathematics, astronomy, megalithic architecture. So the question we should be asking is, who are the, these people? Where did they come from? Where did they go? And is it possible to uncover evidence of uh, these uh, migrations in Mesoamerica? In all your research, Marco, have you uncovered elongated skulls of any kind in Mexico? Have you seen any? And do you think they could be related to what we see in Paracas, Peru? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are many examples in uh, in Mexico, uh, pretty not as extreme as what you find in Peru, but there is definitely evidence from Teotihuacan, from the Maya culture, from the Gulf Coast civilization, the Olmecs, that all these uh, Mesoamerican cultures practiced uh, some form and to varying degrees uh, of a cranial deformation. Now, there's always this question, particularly with the most extreme uh, Paracas skulls and elongated skulls, as to whether that was the result of artificial cranial deformation or this was uh, just uh, a genetic and inherited trait of these individuals. So, and uh, I do think, uh, and this is also something that I discuss uh, in uh, my book, uh, that we may, we may, what we may be looking at uh, with, again, some of these most extreme elongated skulls in South America, maybe actually uh, not simple cranial deformation, but actually influence from uh, different uh, human species perhaps, that may have migrated to those lands, either from Atlantis or from some other now vanished sunken landmass. When it comes to all the ancient sites in Mexico, do you have a site that is your favorite or one that fascinates you most? But right now, I would say Mitla and San Miguel Ixtapa. These are probably like the two sites that fascinate me the most. But um, if, I, if I have to pick one, one site, uh, I would say Xochicalco. This is also a site that I covered in my recent Netflix documentary with, uh, with Graham Henkel. What I find fascinating about the site is this set of bas reliefs that decorate the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpents, the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl, Xochicalco, which, as I suggest in the book, as I also suggest in the Netflix documentary, I do believe they tell uh, a story about the arrival of these uh, gods to Mesoamerica. They tell the story of the origins of Mesoamerican civilization, which is very similar to Plato's Atlantis story, to what we read in the Edfu building texts in Egypt, for instance, about how these gods came and brought civilization. And they brought agriculture, they brought knowledge of uh, agriculture, advanced mathematics, and this is what we find depicted on the Pyramid of Xochicalco. We have the depiction of a cataclysm whose survivors then came to Mesoamerica, they came to Mexico, and they established the first cities. The Mexico version of the deity is Quetzalcoatl? Yes, the feather yes. serpent. Mm -hmm. and, and wasn't he even considered to be like a, a white-skinned, bearded entity? 
Yeah, there, there, there are some accounts. I know the subject is, uh, is somehow controversial, but most of uh, colonial accounts uh, uh, that we have, that of course, were based on earlier Aztec and Mesoamerican traditions. Uh, they depict uh, Quetzalcoatl as a tall, bearded uh, individual. So uh, there is this uh, almost foreign element uh, about uh, Quetzalcoatl, which is, again, reinforced by this tradition that talk about how Quetzalcoatl arrived from the sea and then he left uh, again on a boat towards uh, towards the east. So this suggests that whoever these people were, um, they came from somewhere else. And the direction of their travel, as is suggested in all these documents, almost always from the east, so from the Atlantic Ocean. It's fascinating to me the parallels of all these ancient civilizations that seem to talk about this golden age or Atlantean civilization and these hybrid-like entities um, that appeared, right? These demigods um, and how they relate to what the Book of Enoch describes uh, of the watchers coming down and um, breeding with human women, creating this race of Nephilim, mm -hmm. which Genesis 6 actually mentions. And so uh, it's exciting to me that even now in 2023 on Netflix, this kind of stuff is being talked about with the ancient apocalypse, apocalypse mm -hmm. documentary with Graham and you. And there's there's just so many people talking to me about the cover-up of ancient history that used to know nothing about this or weren't even interested, but because they've seen that show now and um, other channels like this and your research, people are really awakening to man. History goes way back further than we've been led to believe. And, yeah. and it seems like they definitely had some form of lost ancient technology and there was some crazy cataclysms um, that wiped out civilization and then, and then we reset. So exciting times to be alive in the, in the history world. I want to wrap it up. Where can people find your book, the empire of Atlantis? Where can they find that book? Well, you can find uh, the book at all major bookstores also online on Amazon. It's published by in their traditions. So. Um, I also invite you to follow my research uh, and particularly the work they were doing with uh, the ARCS project uh, with the ARCS Foundation in Mexico. Our website is www.arxproject.org where you will find more information about the research at Mitla, at San Miguel Ixtapan and many of these uh, fascinating sites uh, around Mexico. You can also follow us on uh, Facebook uh, at the ARCS Project uh, MX and uh, on Patreon. We actually also have a Patreon page uh, if you would like to support uh, and help us fund our research where we constantly publish new information, new findings, uh, research reports. We should be building a comprehensive uh, library, a digital library, including uh, photo galleries, uh, hundreds uh, now of 3D models of uh, artifacts uh, and the whole archaeological sites in Mesoamerica. So make sure you, you check it out. And uh, if you want to support uh, our research with uh, with your donation, you can do so on, on Patreon and uh, on uh, uh, our fundraising page. Definitely go get Marco's book on Amazon or wherever it's sold. And definitely follow the ARCS project. Again, Marco said they're on Facebook. And also go to the website you're seeing and um, follow and keep up to date with this exciting research. And if you can at all, uh, give a donation. This is important work that's really, um, to me, it's really groundbreaking that we can be a part of something like this and follow the progress, see the photos, and know that it's all being done in um, a way that's not going to damage anything, but it's going to reveal ancient secrets. So, Marco, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your great research and um, for all the blogs you write and all the uh, interviews you do. Uh, you've really brought awareness to the mystery of ancient Mexico in ways I think not nobody else really has, at least in modern times. So 
Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Derek. It's always a pleasure.